Well, when this moose spun around and went out to kick, just the, the stretching and everything of it kicking out, the hoof would open up, and then right when it got to the fullest extension, the hoof would snap, literally snap. You'd hear this, and it was right beside my head a couple of times when it snapped. <laughs> so I guess actually that's probably one of the other times that I was pretty scared. <laughs> this is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. This is part two of an interview with Yukon Conservation Officer Dave Bakicha. Part one is the previous episode if you want to catch it, or you can join in here. Here's the nuts and bolts. Dave has spent his career in the wilderness in really remote places doing a lot of really interesting work. He's retiring after more than 30 years, so former journalist Heather Avery took the opportunity to ask him about some of his craziest memories on the job. Here's part two of Heather's conversation with Yukon Conservation Officer Dave Bakicha. I know you've got another good story about a moose that ended up at the wildlife preserve. Yeah, when I first... uh... Uh, it would have been about three or four years in, I, I guess, first started. First started my full-time position. Um, I happened to be uh, in Whitehorse on my own time, and a, a cow and two calves got chased around in Porter Creek, and I was going to a friend's place in Porter Creek that happened to be on the same street, and we saw this cow and two calves go running down the street, and then uh, just people, somebody had a dog, and a dog barked, and the, the cow and the one calf took off and uh, left the area, and we waited for a while, and she never did come back. And one of the the other calf got caught in uh, in a resident's backyard. So uh, one of the uh, COs at the time here in Whitehorse was on the scene as well. And so the two of us went into the backyard, and we were uh, trying to sort out what we were going to do with this calf moose that was stuck in this fenced backyard. And it was a would have been in end of June, so it was a, a good-sized calf. It, it shoulder would have been easily the height of my shoulder. It would have been uh, five five plus feet off the ground, and uh, we kind of one of those things where you kind of just start doing it and things fall into place as you go. The calf went right into the corner of the fence, so uh, the other officer went went one way and. I went the other way, and it happened that the moose ran in my direction. And I'm looking at this thing coming at me, and, you know, we're looking basically eye to eye. And uh, I stepped to one side a little bit, and I stuck my arm out, just like, a, like you see the clotheslines in, in football. And I, and I caught it right at the base of the neck, and I got its front feet off the ground. It was, it was still light enough that I could lift the front feet off the ground. And then the other officer came roaring around behind it, and he jumped on the back of this thing, and we managed to get it to collapse its legs down on the ground. And then the, uh, the homeowner had a sleeping bag, so we, we wrapped this thing in a sleeping bag so it couldn't stand up. And then uh, I had it on my lap in the back of the Suburban, uh, wrapped in a sleeping bag, and we took it out to the wildlife preserve. So uh, it turned out quite well for that moose, that particular calf. I mean, it would have... 
I don't think it would have found the the its mother and the and its uh, sibling because they they were they were long gone. Uh, they'd been running around, I guess, Porter Creek for about an hour before we ended up uh, catching this one. And they they had been sorry, the cow and cat, other calf had been gone for about an hour. And uh, anyway, as far as I know, I, I don't think that guy's still alive out there anymore. It was a male moose, but he uh, had a long and happy life out at the wildlife preserve after that. Let's talk about caribou now, because I, I, I remember you telling me some wild experiences um, netting caribou. Yeah, we were, uh, we, from time to time, uh, we monitor different uh, herds of, of animals, uh, well, herds of caribou and, and populations and uh, bands of sheep or populations of sheep as well. Uh, and with uh, caribou, I'm, uh, when we want a radio call with moose, you, you have to dart them and use drugs. And that, is, that adds another layer of stress. Um, with caribou and with sheep, we net gun them. Um, and I was involved in net gunning some caribou in the uh, Wolf Lake, uh, from the Wolf Lake caribou herd. And it was, uh, that was, again, it, it's, it's hands-on wildlife management. It was pretty interesting stuff. So I was uh, in the helicopter. Uh, there was a pilot, uh, somebody sitting beside the pilot. The net gunner would be behind the pilot and then myself. And my job was to uh, jump out of the helicopter and jump on top of the caribou after it had been net gunned. So the pilot would file along. We'd find a group of caribou. We'd pick out an individual that we uh, figured was a good candidate, uh, try and move them into an open area. Uh, the net gunner would fire a net gun, which is, uh, it's a net with uh, four ends, so it's a square net, and each of the four ends has a weight on it. So when you shoot, um, the pressure goes down the barrel, and the barrel splits into four, into four smaller barrels, and it shoots these weights out. And at about 20 meters, they get to full extension out, and the net's fully open, so you fly along with that in the helicopter, get about 20 meters from a running caribou in the in the snow. You shoot this net at it, and it will usually tangle the caribou up enough that it'll it'll uh, it'll collapse and end up on the ground. They don't stay that way very long, so immediately the pilot will have to find a spot. It has to be a spot before you even net gun them. It has to be a spot they can land. They'll spin around, they'll land, and then my job was to run out of the helicopter and jump on this caribou and hold it down before it could untangle itself from the net, which um, sometimes they would partially untangle themselves and try to get up with you on their backs and stuff. It was, uh, it was interesting. Um, and they're about 400 pounds, plus or minus. I think some of the bigger ones were 450 pounds. Uh, definitely big enough to get up and go along with me on their back. So I jump, hopped out of the helicopter, run over, jump on these things, and uh, there's a particular trick one of our uh, guys in uh, Haines Junction had learned from some Laplanders that had been over visiting. I don't know quite how the connection was, but these Laplanders, of course, deal with reindeer, and reindeer and caribou are basically the same thing. They're almost genetically indistinguishable. And if you take their front leg at the basically the wrist and you pull it in tight against their body, they stop struggling. 
So we learned pretty quickly that uh, when you jump on these things, you grab a front leg, you pull it in. Now, of course, you're being careful uh, with the antlers. There was cow caribou that we were net gunning. So the cows, of course, have their antlers all through the winter. Uh, you don't want them flailing their head around and poking you with an antler. So you'd come around from the backside, you'd grab an antler in one hand, and you'd grab the front leg in the other hand and pull it in against the chest. And usually they would calm down long enough for somebody else to get out of the helicopter and come and help you. And uh, then first, then the next thing is a blindfold would go on, and then you start untangling the net and getting organized to put a radio collar on. And once the blindfold was on with the, the leg cinched in against the chest and somebody holding the antler or antlers so that the um, caribou, they, they, they were pretty subdued after that. But getting to that point sometimes was a bit of a rodeo. But it was, uh, was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was, we've definitely had some interesting times. And what are the collars for? What do they do? Uh, they were radio tracking collars. And it would give us an idea of uh, uh, range. Um, we, there were, when I started, there were a number of different caribou herds that weren't distinct caribou herds uh, because we just simply didn't know what their range was. Um, the herds are defined by what their winter ranges are, where they go during the winter and where and where they are when they're rutting um, and we teased out a, a number of different herds from just okay there's caribou over there okay no there's actually a herd here the mcgundy herd there's the wolf lake herd there's the finlayson herd we figured a lot of that stuff out and in this particular case it was the wolf lake caribou and we did delineate that the wolf lake and the rancheria caribou uh, herds were two different uh, herds and they often spend a lot of time together What's the weirdest interaction you've had with an animal? I know there were quite a few incidents with lynx last year around Whitehorse. There's been lots of weird interactions. Um, one of the weirdest things that I've seen, uh, and it was animal-to-animal -animal interaction. It wasn't, uh, I was just observing, but uh, we had, a, um, of course, the Yukoners that have been around, uh, you know, recognize that the rabbits go, uh, rabbits, sorry, snowshoe hares, uh, fluctuate in population and of course the lynx follow that fluctuation in population and uh, there was basically a crash last year uh, and we had lynx moving in and around town um, in many cases looking for pets uh, dogs whatever but we had um, three different confirmed cases of lynx killing foxes so they would, uh, they would basically hunt the foxes the same way they hunt the snowshoe hare. They would find a, a spot or a trail. I mean, anybody that's been around Whitehurst in the last few years has seen foxes, and they're pretty, uh, uh, pretty dedicated to the same trails and same places where they travel. Uh, well, the lynx would take advantage of that. They would uh, sit beside the trail until the fox came along, and we actually had three different circumstances where we confirmed that lynx killed foxes. And I had uh, one circumstance that I was called to, uh, and the, the lynx was killing the fox in the backyard uh, when I arrived and actually did end up finishing killing it. But the people in the yard uh, had video, and they had a small dog. So the, the lynx, they figure, had been hanging around the yard to try and get the dog, um, but then ended up getting this fox in the backyard. So that was, that was interesting. It was a great big Tom Lynx, too. It was a, a real big fella. But uh, 
like I said, we had we have had circumstances where dog teams have had uh, issues with lynx coming and killing um, some of their dogs that are chained. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt, a toque, mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. And what about the, the links at the Wildlife Preserve? Um, yeah, that was quite a few years ago now. We had a circumstance where a lynx came around to the sheep enclosure in the wildlife preserve, and it um, tried to take a couple of sheep. And what had happened was that the, the first time around, it jumped on the backs of the sheep, and it clawed them, and it was biting them along the spine and on the back end, and then jumped off and left for about a week. And then the sheep had developed a, a pretty serious infection uh, in their back ends, and they were getting very stiffened up, and they were uh, getting quite weak, actually. And uh, lynx have in their in their mouths. They, if you see, actually most uh, animals with canines, there's there's a little bit of a split in the canine. In the lynx, it's actually a little bit more pronounced, and they have a bacteria in there, and I. I think the understanding is the bacteria comes from rabbits of course um, what they are again snowshoe hares and uh, these this lynx it appears uh, infected these sheep and about a week later when the sheep were weak and uh, not able to fight the lynx off uh, as well or even run from the lynx it jumped back into the enclosure again and it actually killed both the uh, both the rams um, it was, uh, was, that was another very interesting uh, interaction. And again, it was on another uh, circumstance where there was a, uh, a snowshoe hare low. Uh, so the lynx were mm, struggling for food. They were looking a lot harder for, uh, for things to eat. So you must have done some pretty interesting investigations over the years. Do you want to tell me about some of those? Uh, I can think of probably about 10 or 12 big investigations that I wasn't necessarily the, uh, the main party on or, or the main investigator on, but I've been involved with them. Uh, one, of the, one of the ones that I can think of is uh, we got tipped off that uh, there was a guy coming up uh, from BC to guide, and he was guiding for, uh, sort of loosely guiding with an outfitter, uh, but kind of doing his own thing. He was... Uh, um, organizing the hunters himself, uh, doing it all, but doing it a little bit uh, under the auspices of, a, of the outfit, but sort of doing it on his own, which isn't legal. You have to be a, a licensed outfitter in order to guide. He ended up after afterwards showing up in our office uh, looking for export permits for his hunter for a moose, a caribou, a sheep, and a grizzly bear. And he certainly didn't look like he had uh, all of the meat from these things so we kind of got uh, uh, interested in, in investigating what was going on and so we got him to uh, point out some of the kill locations so we started an investigation and uh, myself and another officer went out uh, for a couple nights actually uh, to try and track down all of these different kill locations 
And in the investigation, when we, uh, when we found the moose, we uh, were searching this one valley, and we were right at buckbrush level, so at the lower slopes on a, on a mountain, but in a buckbrush uh, meadow, or sorry, buckbrush valley with a creek running through the bottom. And we were on one side of the valley, and we were uh, the good old telltale ravens. They, uh, anytime you're looking for a kill site, you look for ravens, basically. As soon as you find ravens, then you, you, you know you found the kill site. So myself and this other officer topped a nice little hump. Uh, we were on a horse trail, topped a nice little hump beside the horse trail, and we sat down on this little knoll, and we started glassing around because we knew we were in roughly the right spot. And uh, sure enough, uh, actually in this case it was a magpie, but then ravens were there as well. Oh, okay, so there's the moose kill. Okay, so we're looking around, and, you know, the other officer looks down beside him, and here right beside him on the same little knoll, like, you know, typical hunters, you kind of all go to the same locations to find stuff. Uh, we look down, and here's a couple empty shell casings right beside him. We're looking at it, and where, where the moose was was a good shot, a good location right from where we were. So we look around a bit more and we found a couple of gum wrappers and uh, a couple of butted out cigarettes and a few other little things right in our, and we're like, okay, we're, we were literally in the middle of nowhere. Nobody else had been there other than these, these um, the hunter and the guide. So uh, we collected the evidence there and it turned out that was exactly what they had done. They had been walking on the horse trail. They'd sat down there, glassed around and had seen the moose in the, across the valley and then had shot it. So uh, as, we, as it turned out later on, we found out that that's exactly what had happened. But at the time, then we walked over, we went to the moose, and of course it was, there was lots of it had been, had been wasted. Um, and uh, they had actually taken a knife and cut between the ribs and sliced down between the ribs to open up the, the hide because uh, they allow for scavengers to eat the moose more quickly. Uh, and cut through the guts so you get start to get some smell and you get things rotting and it would uh, hopefully attract a bear or, or it did act, in fact attract a wolf. We, there was a wolf on the site. Um, as it turned out, the way the moose was laying, um, one of the backstrap, or sorry, one of the tenderloins inside was not in blood uh, and it wasn't in any rumen, it wasn't in, so I cut this piece of backstrap out and we brought it back, or sorry, a piece of tenderloin out and brought it back with us. And uh, I, the rest of the moose, there was nothing we could do except document the fact that it was wasted because we were flying in a helicopter. There's no way we could recover it. And it was, most of it was pretty rotten. Um, when I got this uh, piece of tenderloin back to the office, I cleaned it up and very carefully and smelled it and was real cautious with it and uh, sliced it up uh, because we... Uh, often uh, want to counter the argument these people say in court um, this moose wasn't fit to eat it's it's in our legislation that if it's unf anything fit for human consumption shall not be wasted well okay it wasn't fit for human consumption well prove it wasn't uh, uh, or sorry prove it was the onus falls on us to prove that it was fit uh, well, actually, that's debatable, but it, it becomes an issue in court, long and short of it. So I took this piece of tenderloin and sliced it all up and fried it up in the office, and I was offering pieces for people to eat, and I ate some myself, and it was actually uh, perfectly edible. Uh, and it had been, from our calculations, it had been on the, now, of course, it is in uh, late August, so cool, 
high mountain, uh, and it wasn't in any of the rumen or any of the other parts of the animal that had rotted. But uh, it was actually it was delicious. It was it was typical moose tenderloin. I thought it was uh, very good. So that was a, was an interesting part of that uh, file and. We did end up convicting that uh, guide. It was the guide. The hunter didn't understand that he wasn't, uh, and ultimately the hunter was covered by the outfitter, but the guide had done the illegal activities. Yeah, over the years we've had a, a few of those kinds of things, um, but those are a couple that stand out for sure. So you've got a lot of great stories. You've been with uh, the conserva- Yukon Conservation Officer Services for more than 30 years. You've been working with this group for a long time. What are you going to miss the most? Uh, you know, at, at the time when I started working, it certainly wasn't one of the reasons why I came into this job, but uh, I really do enjoy dealing with the people. I mean, some of them are challenging uh, interactions with people, but I meet so many different people, and generally speaking, when I'm dealing with someone, they're pretty happy. I mean, there's the odd time where there's uh, no license or too many fish or uh, shot something uh, that they weren't supposed to by accident or and it very occasionally where people are truly poaching but uh, they're out they're out hunting or fishing or camping or canoeing or boating they're enjoying themselves they're having fun uh, almost always meeting people with a smile on their face when they see me they're happy to see me um, it it really is the uh, the enjoyment of dealing with the people it's it's a lot of fun. Um, there are definitely challenging people. I'm not gonna, not gonna sugarcoat that one. There are people that I deal with that I have that, but those challenges are just that challenges, and I, I certainly enjoy doing those too. Uh, I enjoy looking back at those more than doing them at the time. So what's next for you then? A summer of playing. I get to uh, have a summer off. I think I've had two summers off in 33 years. So uh, I'm going to, and one of those summers I was in Ireland, so I wasn't playing here in the Yukon. I'm going to be hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, canoeing. Uh, Hope to to go do some pack rafting. Uh, I haven't tried that yet, so I want to give that a go. But that's going to be the first thing on my list of things to do. Uh, sorry, that's my list. My wife's list, I'm sure, will be all kinds of things around the house to do. But uh, that's okay. And then after that, who knows? That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. And for a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street, across from City Hall. There's a great selection of clothing, hats, stickers, glassware, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas editor at northofordinary.com is my email. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out soon. I hope you listen in.